Welcome to the Growth Ventures Podcast, the go-to platform for entrepreneurs, innovators, and changemakers. I'm your host, Hamlet Azari. In this podcast, we delve into the world of business, technology, and innovation. We bring you conversations with industry leaders, disruptors, and visionaries who are shaping the future and making a difference. So whether you're an aspiring entrepreneur, a seasoned business owner, or simply a curious listener, join us on the journey of learning and growth. Welcome to the Growth Ventures Podcast. And now, let's delve into today's episode. Welcome to the Growth Ventures Podcast, where we delve into a fascinating world of startups, innovation, and entrepreneurship. I'm Hamilton Zayarin, your guide on this journey of discovery. Today, we're joined by Brian McMahon, the founder and CEO of Expert Dojo, a powerhouse in the startup accelerator space. Expert Dojo is a beacon for early stage startups based in Southern California, especially in challenging diversity and inclusion. Brian's journey is one of global impact, resilience, and commitment to reshaping the entrepreneurial landscape. In this episode, we'll explore Brian's unique approach to the startup ecosystems, his vision for global expansion, and his insights into the future of entrepreneurship. So let's get started. Brian, thanks for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to have you on to our podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time and being able to sit in and have a conversation. Of course. Delighted to be here. Of course. Great. So Brian, as, as for some of the new listeners, what we like to do on this podcast is we go to your past, present, and future, and we delve into more or less your journey as sort of not only a founder, but also as a VC and how you see entrepreneurship as a whole. Um, so before we get started, may- maybe it would, be, uh, it would be helpful for people who don't know who Expert Dojo is, if you can give a quick like one-liner what Expert Dojo is and what you guys do. And where do you guys fit in overall the venture land? Perfect. We are a mission-based accelerator and highly specialized in the growth hacking space to help founders get to the place they want to go to. Um, everything we do is based on investment first. So we've invested in around 280 plus companies over the last four and a half years all over the world. United States, MENA region, Latin America, Southeast Asia. Uh, Africa, anywhere you can imagine, we've been investing in those companies. Very early stage and very, very, very close personal touch to help them scale. Amazing. So we'll dig into that more into a little bit later on the podcast. But before we get there, let's talk a little bit about your past. So what is what was your entrepreneurial journey like? When, when did you first get the entrepreneurial bug, as they like to say? Clumsy. My journey, my journey was clumsy. You know, I wish I wish I had known 30 years ago what I know today. And that's very much a driver of the Expert Dojo mission and, and where we're going to go to. I, I truly believe it's not about building a unicorn or, or having a $100 million company. It's about the freedom of creation that entrepreneurship and startup facilitates, right? Um, and, and, and it's no disrespect to people working a job because they have other priorities, but if you work your entire life for somebody else, you're in a very compromised position from the first day until the last day when you leave that job. And while if you start off your own company, you're in control of what you're bringing to the world and what your creation is about. And and I, I was privileged to have arrived in the United States around 20 years ago, having lived in many other countries before then. And I'm sure we'll, we'll dig into that as we go through. And that was when I, I started to really understand the power of entrepreneurship I mean, prior to that, I had a property development company um, for a little while, and that went great. 
And I had worked with Regis, who are like one of the largest um, serviced office providers in the world and become very close with their management as we expanded from region to region. Um, and then really when I came to the United States, I realized, wow, there's a whole different world out there. And that world is about really taking control of your own life, your own destiny, and for whatever it brings. Look, we only live until a certain amount of time anyway, so we might as well fill that time with actually bringing really important things to the world. And so really, as I started out over here, I then opened up a company, which was a, a office-on-demand company, very much along the lines of Future of Offices, which I knew very well. Um, partnered up with a chap, sold it off to him. Um, again, very happy. And, and so for me, it was clumsy. You know, started a little bit, then working for other folks, property development, then having my own company, which was a tech company, and, and realizing what the tremendous benefits could be. Amazing. So what I heard from you is basically having control of your own destiny, being able to be focused on the things that you want to be working on. And from there, your journey has led you to discovering entrepreneurship, but more realizing the impact here in the United States. Can I, is that yeah, information? You know, I, I, and I would never say that, you know, my life is filled full of regret because I've been super privileged to have lived in over 30 countries and, and lived in one. Yeah, I, like, I, I, I had the privilege of living in Russia and living in China and living in Norway and Sweden and Denmark and Finland and Latvia and Lithuania and Mexico and all those great places. And I've traveled through, you know, Thailand and Indonesia and like Malaysia and Singapore. So the world has been incredibly kind to me. I just, if I could rewind back and have any impact on the world that I possibly could, I would change the entire education system everywhere in the world so that every 12-year-old child learned entrepreneurship as a major. Wow. Now, there are reasons why governments don't want to do this. <laughs> <laughs> because that would like lead to a whole empowered group of people. And instead, most of us are left in the dark and feeling pretty stupid about how do you start a business? What does great product fit look like? How do you expand and outreach to the types of people who will be of maximum benefit to your business? How do you communicate properly with your end user to make sure that all of your hard work is, is there for a reason? But yeah, I would do that. I think it's an awful travesty that nobody is taught this and everybody almost has to learn it by mistake unless they're really privileged like me today where I'm in California and it's really the lifeblood of California. Amazing. So so your travels around the world, let's dig a little bit into that. What are some interesting perspectives you've learned, not only living in different places, but obviously seeing different parts of the world that when you come back here here in the States, you, you see one as opportunities that we're not doing here in the States that you kind of learn from. And two, while you're also there traveling in that country, you're like, wow, this could be a phenomenal place to start a new accelerator and so on and so forth. Yeah, well, be, first of all, because I have such a love for the US, I, I actually have a tremendous amount of sadness right now for what I see that's happening. And I'll, I'll dig into that later on because it ties directly into venture capital entrepreneurship, startup, and really the U.S. not holding the podium as it should do for many reasons, which are caused by my my industry. Um, and as far as like the world, you know, again, there's an element of sadness to it as well, because everywhere I've been, 
without exception, everybody's the same, right? We may be manipulated slightly differently, um, you know, whether it's through multiple different elements, which I won't go into here, but we're all the same. Like, we want safety, we want security, we want to have enough food to make sure that we go to. Actually, let me answer this slightly differently. I'm, I'm going to tell, let me, let me answer it with a thing of beauty. So one of the most gorgeous things that I've discovered in my journey as a venture capitalist and as an entrepreneur um, is hidden deep in Japanese philosophy. And it's a thing called Ikigai. Ikigai, okay. ikigai is a thing of beauty. And I promise you, anybody listening to this podcast just with this, they'll walk away and say, wow, that was damn good. Because this is the secret of happiness. We love it so much, we actually transcribed it into product fit so we could align user experience, user interface, and product fit into an Ikigai-type platform. And here's how it works. They, they being smart people in the world, when traveling around the world trying to find blue zones, they went to trying to find people that were living an awful long period of time so they could work out how and why. And of course, they went to the Mediterranean and they found like a bunch of folks in Greece or somewhere else who are living for ages. And of course, they were living for ages. They were sitting on their deck chairs, very happy, in the sun, not a worry in the world. But then they went to this place in Japan and they found this other group of people. And this other group of people were reaching wonderful long ages, but they were working. And not only were they working, but they were happy working. And so this was very hard for the rest of us to comprehend. Like, how can you be of an advanced age like that, still be working, still be useful, still be loving it, and they and they codified it as Ikigai. And Ikigai really means, the center of Ikigai is really purpose. Purpose being something far more important than just momentary happiness. Like, it's the thing that drives us. How do I fit in? How do I fit into this world? Is something similar to that, or? It's deeper than that. So it's got four components. The first component is that you have to be the best at what you do. You have to be incredibly good at what you do. If you're just okay at what you do, that's not good enough, right? Number two, you have to love what you do. Like you can't just be the best at what you do and not love what you do because if that's the case, you know, you're gonna be good, but you're gonna be miserable, right? But if you're just good and if you're the best at what you do, but you're not getting paid more than other people who are at your same level or, or, or who do the job before you and around you, then it's a hobby, right? It's not definitely nothing stronger than that. Now, if you just have those three things, it's good. You're getting paid a ton of money. You're loving what you're doing. You're the best out there at what you are. Think of like a, a craftsperson who makes these beautiful wood chairs. Like everybody from like thousands of miles goes to this person because they nail all of those things. But if you don't have the final piece, you don't get Ikigai, right? Because there's a sense of, uh, of emptiness that fits in there, even though you're incredibly accomplished. And the final piece is impacting the world in a way that you will be remembered. And I'm not, I'm, I'm purposely not using the words make the world a better place because I think there's so many different definitions for what that actually means, but impacting the world in a positive way that will make you remembered. And like a legacy or something different? So like Tom's Shoes do it very beautifully, right? Where, where you know, are argue, Many people like have lots of conversation. Or oh, Patagonia, do it in a beautiful. Patagonia would be a wonderful example, actually, because look at the end of the day, they just sell damn T-shirts. Like that's what they sell. But their purpose and their mission is so strong. The world is most definitely a better place, a more impacted place. Those guys 
get a higher amount for a, a pretty standard t-shirt than anybody else will. They are the absolute best at what they do, which is creating fully sustainable clothing that do not damage the planet. And they love it. These guys were hikers up on mountains, up with the llamas before they ever made it down to having a department store. So Ikigai is very powerful. So we actually transformed Ikigai into product fit. So this is my learn from the world. Everybody deep down in their core, whether it's a startup or whether it's somebody who's in the um, the normal world, um, we're all searching for Ikigai. And, and a lot of us settle for a lot of our lives without actually striving towards Ikigai. So going back to my school comment, if I could redo it all over again and create my own little mini country, everybody would be learning Ikigai and then developing it into creation immediately afterwards. Oh my God, I love that. Is this part of what you're looking for in founders too? The people who are in search of their ikigai and they're not even aware of that or? It's evolved, right? At the beginning it was, but then you realize something. Not everybody's ready. Not everybody deserves a shot at the title. Like that's just the truth. When I was younger, I didn't deserve a shot at the title. Even when I was a little bit older, I didn't deserve a shot at the title. I deserve a shot at the title now because I'm ready. And ready means that you're in a position to execute that particular area of execution better than anybody else is at that moment, right? You're better at product fit. You're better at your product. You're better at your outreach. You're better at your, you, you, you know, you have it nailed down. Just wanting it, just deserving it, just feeling that you've worked hard for it. I actually, the thing I struggle with most actually in entrepreneurship, because I've seen so much of the, the terrible travesty that sits inside people failing. And is is um, when people have got grit and determination. I think grit and determination can sometimes be your greatest enemy. Execution is your greatest friend. You are fighting one battle, and that battle is against time. That is it. When you're becoming a venture-backable startup, you don't want grit and determination. You don't want that. Who the hell wants to be married to somebody who's been trying this for 15 years? You don't need that. What you want someone is a great executor. So what do I look for today? I look for people who are like in this place, this perfect place where they're ready to execute. There are no distractions and everything points towards doing it. And in some ways, if I get really lucky, I also get secondary proof that their customers believe that they're executing something worth executing. I love that. So you're looking for people who are not distracted, get down to business, you know, tell you they're going to do this and go out and actually execute it upon that. And then on top of that, what's a nice validation for you is seeing customers that are happy with their service or their product and so on and so forth. But it's not necessarily needed at that stage. It's more the founder themselves that are they going to get it done? Are they going to bring their vision to life? Yeah. Okay. Awesome, man. And then, so I, I know we've talked about your personal journey, how did Expert Dojo come to be in, in the early infancies? Like, I know you guys are much bigger now. You've invested in so many different startups. Can you t tell me when, what was the point where you said, you know what, it's time for me to to start an accelerator, to become a VC? When did you get to that point? I'm not sure that point ever happened, actually, funny enough. Um, I, I got down here to California. I'd had the pleasure of living in New York and in Boston and Chicago and in Houston and Austin and San Antonio and Dallas, Carlsbad, you know, a bunch of other places. And I, I got here and I was like, okay, I'm, um, I'm down here. It's like, it's got a beach, which means that my wife was happy and, and my kid had a swing, which they didn't have in New York. So even though I love New York, I, I still came down. 
And so I came here and I just leaned into the place that I knew, which was early stage startup and creation. And I would go from place to place to place to place. And I would meet a ton of startups and a ton of other investors. And I would say to those startups, hey, um, you know, what do you got going on? They would say, oh my God, I'm so glad you asked. I've got like the greatest company in the entire world. We're going to change, blah, blah, blah. And then like 12 months later, I would never see them again. Or, or, or 18 months later or six months later, I would never see them again. And it kind of reminded me of a movie. It's a super old movie, so most people won't have heard of it. But it's a Stephen King movie called Children of the Corn. I'm aware of it, but I haven't seen it. Yeah, that's a good sign. You know, it's honestly, if you'd seen it, it wouldn't be good. You should be happy. And so the idea of Children of the Corn is that like these like random folks turn up in a town and there's nobody in the town over the age of 18. And they couldn't understand where they're all got. And it's because like at the age of 18, they are sent into a field and they disappear in that field and they never come back ever again. The field eats them. And so I'm convinced there's like a field of startups that eats them. And they have a certain period they go through and they run out of money. And then, I don't know, man, they go back to Detroit, Ohio, Ireland, become an Uber driver, end up working in a restaurant, start another startup, whatever. It's still very sad, right? And they disappear. And the more I looked at it, the more I thought, we have all these documentaries which talk about success, 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 success. And then we have all of these people who are chasing that. Nobody's showing them how to chase it. And they're failing. The vast majority are failing. Like, there, how many unit, how many people do you know outside people you've interviewed who are unicorns? Like, nobody, right? It's not a thing, but it's spoken about as if it is a thing. And so I just wanted to be a part of something. And I thought there was a terrible travesty happening here. So I started arranging events as a hobby. I don't even know that we charged for them. Down in the Victorian, which was... And we would arrange these huge pay-it-forward events. And the idea would be like six, seven, 800 people would come out on a Tuesday night once a month. And then we would create giving trees and all kinds of stuff. And then the idea was, look, there is no community of per se down here. And so let's create like a great community where everybody comes out together and everybody supports each other. And then investors would come out and mentors would come out and marketing people would come out. And it was really powerful. So that was great. And then after a while, you know, I was doing that alongside of my normal things. And I, I, I met with a couple of the folks in the mall and the mall said, hey, you want to take a space? And I was like, great, because I want to study failure. Now I'm kind of fixated on why companies fail. And then so we brought companies in here, offered them free space for a long period of time, did a little bit of coaching around that. And then we just studied them for, for ages, like maybe for nine months a year. And then I started to reach all these conclusions with really good people around me. And every time I reached a conclusion, it brought me back to the same place, which is why I'm, I'm sad for what's happening in the US right now. And that place is that our entire venture capital system is based on a platform of bias. And that platform of bias is very focused on a very specific founder who went to a very specific school, who's related to an even more specific VC, and that founder who looks a certain way, is a certain gender, is a certain color, and went to a certain school, gets a unicorn for their birthday. And I, and I don't want to diminish like incredible work that people have done. I'm generalizing in a huge way here. But when we look at what happened with WeWork, not so much the founder, but what happened with the company, it's very easy to see. Like No company should be given three or four billion dollars so that they can unfairly compete against really great competitors who could make America a better place. Like that's not right and it's not fair and it's not competitive and it's totally wrong. So what happened was this great company, because anybody who's, you ever been in a WeWork space? I have. Great spaces, right? Great, beautiful spaces. Beautiful spaces. So this awesome model that could have taken out Regis, who were like my friends back in the day, 
got destroyed by too much money and the fundamentals of building and growing a phenomenal business were ignored. And if that business had been allowed to grow at the rate it should have grown at, it would, without question, be number one or joint number one provider on the planet, period. And so for me, I looked at that and I thought, wow, what a terrible shame that these things were allowed to happen in, in the world. And I wanted to be a part of fixing it and understanding it. So if bias exists, what's the only thing that overcomes bias? Aligned greed. I love aligned greed. It's not quite Gordon Gecko with like pure greed. It's aligned greed. Tell me, what aligned, yeah, tell me what aligned greed is. This is the first time I'm hearing of it. First of all, it's based on you have to add an accelerant into this to make sure that something happens that wouldn't normally be happening. So normally with early stage founders, they spend all their time asking for money and, and they don't realize they're not going to get a serious A round. The vast majority of them will not get it. And so rather than have them working on money and like leaning into that whole bias, we focus them on growth, pure growth, whereby all of us are trying to get better numbers, better outcomes, better customer relations, better conversion metrics, better, 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 better. Every single morning of every single day, anybody not outreaching 30% of the day, shame on them. They are failing the principle. Anyone who's not like focusing on building better and better per product, exactly the same. Anybody, 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 like it's all about getting all of the people around you and saying, okay, guys, we're going to grow as fast as we can grow, but we're going to grow based on the customer interaction, not based on being given $100 million or $50 million. And that way you build this incredible community as you go forward. And then everybody wins around you. The investors win around you. The startup wins. Their family wins. The advisors win. The service provider, like everybody is pointed in a direction. And the direction is how much revenue our users do we need to get to a serious A and how quickly can we get there? Every points in that direction. I love it. And, and now that you put them in different cohorts, so this helps them motivate each other and then they learn from each other and they're able to grow together. It's kind of- Kind of. Kind of. We started out that way. And so like our, our, our philosophy at the beginning was we know that growth is the, is the change maker, right? We know that bias is overcome when aligned greed comes in. So that same person who would have said, I am not going to invest in a female founder who is, let's say, Irish for the want of just choosing a category, but like this Irish female founder because I don't inherently believe that women are going to be able to break through, right? There's a lot of people who think like that. Obviously not us, but there's a lot of people out there who do. Um, and so you then get to a place where that person believes that until they see 200% growth on revenue, 150% growth on revenue, 200% growth on revenue. Now, what happens then, which is extremely important, is that the power dynamics change. Now, that Irish female founder is like, screw you. You know something? I'm in control right now. I got 40 other investors who can invest in my company because aligned greed has taken over. It's wonderful, right? There's no losers on this. And, and we just found this to be a much, much better model than anything before. Now, you could say to me, how many female founders have we invested in? And I will tell you, I have no frigging clue. Not a clue. You could say to me, how many um, culturally or, or uh, diverse people have we invested in? And I would tell you, not a clue. And I would tell you, we will never, ever measure 
any demographics that we measure in. But I will tell you as well, we're one of the biggest investors in Africa by deal numbers. Um, and in Latin America, and we've got so some of our best performing companies right now are female founded companies. But I think the answer to all of the bias goes both ways, by the way. I don't want to just invest in people because they're women. Neither do women want us to do this. Neither does anybody from any community. That's not that standard community that are receiving investment right now. They just don't want to be disadvantaged. Right. Aligned, greed, rocks. Amazing. And then so... What do you guys help with them? You you help them with go-to-market strategies. You help them with earth, yeah. how, how to actually do product-to-market fit. What are some things that Expert, Expert Dojo comes in and helps these founders? Because it seems like you spend a long time learning what businesses, the reason they became unsuccessful. So what were some of the things you learned in that process that you said, okay, wh when we do this, these are essentials that they need to learn. And these are the things that we want to make sure that they can execute well on. I think the first thing any early stage founder has to realize is, is how little we know, right? It's very easy to have a thesis on a certain thing. Like my thesis was really clear. I think like some of the accelerators that exist today are some of the most successful financial products that exist anywhere. Like a, a Y Combinator would bring better returns than and just forever. Right? I don't care who they are, PE firms, hedge funds, whatever. Y Combinator would beat them. But I also feel they haven't evolved in 20 years. Like what they have, and this is no disrespect. I love Y Combinator. I love what they've done. But like the model is exactly the same. It was a 12-week model back then. It's a 12-week model now. There were fewer companies back then. There are more companies back then. And so what I'm always trying to do is see how do we, and it's not just Y Combinator. I, I use them as just a great example of, of a company that I have tremendous respect for. But like I then say, well, look, what is it that's not working that doesn't tie into founders who would not normally be able to break through being able to break through? And first of all, 12 weeks is not enough time. It's just not enough time. And also, like bringing people to a fixed location, for me, is a disrespect to those people. They got their companies to run. What do they want to be? Treated like 12-year-olds in a room with a bunch of other people hoping they can meet somebody famous who had a unicorn? Like, that's not valuable. Mentorship? I'm sorry. Mentorship was valuable 20 years ago. Today, it's a commodity at best and dangerous at worst because people don't have enough information to give the best advice. So they give the best advice they can, which could easily be the wrong advice. Access to investors, again, a commodity 20 years ago, hugely valuable. Today, you know how many investors there are in the US? I will tell you, as an accelerator, I don't know 20% of the investors in the US today. I don't even know them. There's so many new ones. VC labs spat out like 300 new VC firms this year. Who the hell knows these? Like nobody. So what? So what? What's on offer other than wasting these people's time in a particular area? And so we started out naively, looking at you know, let's bring everybody into a place, let's put them in a room, let's make it a great experience. You know, the circus clowns, the fireworks, everything that goes with it, it was great, right? And people would go away and say, "Wow, that was an amazing program." And as terrible as a lot of the things that COVID brought was, this was one thing which was a gift because COVID forced us into a place of common sense where actually we realized, you know what, we can help people and train people just as well online as we can everywhere else. But we were still doing the 12-week programs. And then we looked at our companies and we realized that as we were assessing them and working with them, we realized so many companies were kind of falling off the wagon. It would be like going through an addiction program and after 12 weeks, they're like, okay, you're good now, right? No, not good. You know, I'm. this is 
something I have to live with and I need your support to help me get through. And so we looked at it so strongly and we came to a moment where we realized we were not impacting our companies anywhere near that we hoped that we would. So we broke the whole system. For four months, we didn't invest in anything. And I think like earlier on this year, nothing at all. I came to the conclusion we were not impacting our companies the way we wanted to. And so we went away for four months. We worked we worked with our companies and we came back with a whole new program, which is a four-year program. And the four-year program are monthly sprints. Every sprint is on a different uh, area of growth. They're all about growth. So one would be brand, another would be personal brand, another one would be you know, product love. We don't do minimum viable product. I hate the term with a passion. I think lean startup is one of the greatest abominations that's ever been brought into the entrepreneurial world. I believe in lovable product, right? Which is simple, complete, and required. Like simple as that. You can build on top of that, but that's a minimum level you're going from. And then, so we built out this four-year program. We have hundreds of experts that we have in our in our stable, I call them. Some of those people are paid um, month to month. Some of those people are our mercenaries. And some of those people are phenomenal experts that we bring in, depending on an area of growth that startup needs to work on. And, and we want to be able to become like the greatest repository for startup growth within the highly scalable area that's ever existed. That's our goal going forward. That's amazing. So now you guys are investing long-term, you you are with the startups, not only through just the investment and the 12 weeks, but your your commitment is three, four years of helping teach them and provide the right teams that come in on those monthly monthly sprints. Did, did I understand that correctly? Absolutely. That's what we want because people need that. And look, different people have different levels of, of needs as we go through. Like some people, most people believe that they need investment. We are 100% sure they do not need investment. They need growth. Investment is only the symptom. Growth is the underlying disease. If they don't have growth and they're not growing at a fast enough trajectory, they won't get investment. If they are growing, there's so many investors. It doesn't matter who you are. Investors are going to put money into it. And it's not that like we've got this magic formula that bias suddenly disappears straight away. It's not, but it is mitigated to a huge extent when you get down to this type of level. And we see it over and over again with the founders we're in. And by the way, if anybody like questions the, 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 the enormity of this problem, you just have to look at the amount of female IPOs that there have ever been in the history of the United States. I don't even need both hands. I don't even need all my fingers to count all of the ones that have happened. That's how bad this situation is. How many male IPOs have there been? Thousands, tens of thousands, so many. So this is a huge problem. And yeah, growth solves all problems. You know, look, if I give you the, the calculation, it's real simple. And so for any startups listening to this and they're saying, hey, Brian, you know, you're vague on, on, on kind of what we need to do to get to unicorn status or raise money on investors, here's what it is. Number one, if you grow at 200% growth or 150% growth or even 100% growth or 300% growth every year, you're going to build a unicorn. All right, think about it like this. You're doing twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 a month. $30,000, year one, you get 200% growth. That's $90,000 a month. You did great. You pushed it really hard. You were outreaching like 60% of your time and communicating with an awesome product. Year two, 
you raised a bit of money because they saw that you're you got to ninety thousand dollars a month. And year two now, you brought it up a hundred percent, hundred and eighty thousand dollars a month. Let's say year three, you nailed it because you got maybe a small Series A or a good bridge round. Two, three million dollars, that was enough to hire a bunch of extra people. So now you go 180, 360, 540, that's 200%, right? Now you're at $540,000 a month. You only need like 100% and suddenly you're at a million dollars a month. And now you're a smidgen away from unicorn status, like a smidgen, you're there. Right. And so if, if you were to say, oh, well, what if we do 70% growth? And you're still going to get there. It's just another year or two that you're going to have to make to do it. And a little bit more uncertainty that you have within the investors. And I have a wonderful, wonderful investor friend, which I probably shouldn't mention here, but he's in my mind, one of the top investors in the United States. And he has a very simple matrix. His matrix is any company that's growing at 300%, exceptional. Any company that's growing at 200%, very good, very good. Any company growing at 100%, pass. Any company which has got 150% or 130%, I'm sorry, customer retention, because remember, they're early stage companies. So if customers are buying more product from you, you got 130% retention. Exceptional. Companies that are doing 100% retention, very good. Companies which are doing over 70% retention, that's okay. Pass, right? And then he goes down to the next level and he looks at like, how much runway do they have? If they only have a month's runway, problem. If they have like 12 months plus runway, then they're in really good space, et cetera, et cetera. And then he goes further down and he's like, okay, if we have someone on the management team that actually has done this stuff before, except or two people, exceptional, one person, blah, 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 and then a passive with someone that's showing execution, but maybe they haven't done this thing before. And then he had one more criteria. So investors don't think very deeply on a lot of the areas that entrepreneurs might feel about. Like if they just solve the growth problem, they'll do great and build out phenomenal companies. Amazing. Great answer. So if everyone was listening in, he kind of gave a little uh, little insights how investors think through and the rubrics they look at and evaluating where the startup is and at the different stages. I love that. Thanks for sharing that, Brian. What are some of like the success stories that you guys have had at Expert Dojo and, and what do you think what do you think led that to them? Like when you look at the, some of the startups you've invested in, what is a breakout startup that you're proud of that has been able to kind of push through? I got loads. I got loads. Uh, we will do follow-on investments based on on metrics that companies hit, so up to a th up to a million dollars uh, within a three-year period in the companies as well. And so we have just invested another million dollars into Matchbook AI, great LA-based company. We invested in around just over two years ago, a tiny bit over two years ago, and they are already at four hundred and forty thousand dollars a month in revenue. The guys are doing amazing. Um, they're building up their logos, three logos at the beginning. Then they got up to 12. Then they got up to 21, I believe. Now they're at 37 logos. When I talk about logos, I'm talking about Google, Microsoft, Snowflake, like the biggest companies in the world are their companies. And so that's a huge... What, what do they do and, and what... Oh, so deep data integration. So they take data from Dun & Bradstreet and Moody's, and then they provide unique insights into larger organizations who want to do amazing founder running a phenomenal company over there. We've been incredibly close to them from the beginning. Now probably raised, you know, four or five million dollars. But at the we beginning- We get like one of the first checks or 
Yeah, or... we were the, well, I think we were the first check or very, very close to the, we we're pretty much always like one of the first checks that goes in. But I think one thing I'm far prouder of is if you speak to Rusha, Rushab, who's an amazing founder over there, he will tell you that Expert Dojo were instrumental in him getting to the growth trajectory that he got to. Um, and he's an Indian founder based over here in the US, great, great, great guy. And Klasha based out of Africa. Uh, Klasha, Jess is the founder of Klasha. Again, she is a phenomenal entrepreneur. Um, she did, she, they, think of it as PayPal. Think of Africa, one of the challenges is if you're going to transact between different countries, 60, 70% of the time, it will kick back at you. Like imagine that, you want to buy some shoes in Kenya, it's going to kick back 70% of the time. That gets pretty frustrating. They're solving that problem. Wow. And they have done tens of millions of dollars in transactions in their second year. It's one to one to many. They've raised millions of dollars from great VCs, Gradecroft, Basecamp, um, Lofty, ton of other great VCs that they've, that they've done really well on. And they're going to be raising their A in uh, the first half of next year. So again, another phenomenal success. Uh, Akiba, again, she's in South Africa. Again, an amazing founder. And um, like, I, 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 unfortunately, you're limited on time in the podcast, or I could tell you all these stories about finding product fit, building out growth, building out the communication with customers. But her revenue will hit three to $400,000 a month by the end of this year. Again, she just raised another half a million dollars from alumni ventures on top of millions that she's already raised. Again, we were one of the first checks in. Again, we introduced her to most investors. Again, we worked with her very closely on on all of her growth trajectory. Sensei, Anna from Sensei, one of the top CEOs I've ever met in my entire life. She's hitting like a million dollars a month now in revenue. Again, two, two and a half years since we invested in Anna. Ben from Gesture, amazing company that involved, by the way, Sensate is a hardware device that sits on your chest, ties into the vargas nerve, reduces stress, which is like being demonstrated time and time and time again. She's an amazing founder. Her co-founder is a Harley Street surgeon. Um, again, amazing team. I think they all know. I mean, it sounds like you guys have a lot of great- I could give you 15, 20 more. <laughs> yeah. So when you look back at all of them, what, what what's the common- Execution, obviously, they all executed really, really well. And what other things did you see in common when you see in common amongst them? Like, what what made them so successful? Do you think they executed it well? They they got the product right correctly, or honestly, execution is so power is such a powerful trait. There are so many people who talk. I was one of the people who talk. And we talk, 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 talk. We could explain how something is going to be amazing. And then there are these people. And I, by the way, these are not different people. These are different timelines in people's lives, right? Mm -hmm. There is a moment that you hit and you know that's the moment. That's your chariots of fire moment. Like that is the most useful that you will ever be to the planet in your entire life. Some people hit that moment at 70. Look, Morgan Freeman, look. He was an overnight success at the age of 50, <laughs> right? So like some of them hit it at 50 and they become the greatest actor that the world has ever seen, arguably. Other people, you know, hit 19, 20 and they're just, you know, they're old before their time, are young, old before their time and they do incredible things. But it's when you're in that place because the thing is this, we could answer, I could answer a thousand different ways that I could say, well, it depends on building the product. But the truth is, if you're in a place of execution, you're not going to be working with a product 
that is not going to be executed really well, which means you're not going to work with a shitty product, right? It means you're not going to not outreach because you know that execution means outreach. It means you're not going to be working on brand messaging and making sure that it's reflected in your site because again, 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 execution, being in that place of execution, we know them, we see them. It's something in their eyes. They don't waste time. They don't hang out talking about stuff. They just go straight in every single day because they know they, I'm trying to think of a nice analogy. They, they collect what they studied for. <laughs> oh, I love that. No, they don't mess around. They, they raise the bar. It seems like it's not just execution. It's a level of quality in their product that they're building and the service that they're providing and the way that they're getting the shit done, right? Like, Yeah, you can no. see. And, and if I reverse engineer this, by the way, because some people might be saying like, Brian, how do you tell execution if somebody hasn't founded a company before? And I could say, well, you can see it in their history and you can see it in how they are and you can see their moment. You can see the people that they build around them. Like you can see everything. People who are in a place of execution, they hire up. They don't hire down. They don't have people around them. And like, and I've had times in my past, I've hired down. Not anymore. I only hire up right now because I'm in a moment of extreme execution. And so, but actually the really easy way to tell, the customer tells you. You can tell. You can tell by how many testimonials they are. You can tell how many customers are staying with them. You can tell by how much they're outreach. Like you can set, you can tell with their entire marketing engagement what kind of a place of execution they're in in that exact moment. I love that. So looking at the retention of the customers overall with the feedback that they're also providing, it sounds like also being surrounded, them surrounding themselves by people that they're learning from. Probably there's a bunch of experiments that they're running continuously. They're also gathering knowledge and information about the market that's helping them build a better product, all of those different things. Yeah. Yeah. But if you, again, if you go back to the place of the percentages I gave for growth, if you go back to the place of how are you engaging with your customer? What is your customer telling you? Then you're going to find out there's, a, by the way, for all of us, there's always a problem in one of three places or all three places, right? The amount of outreach that we are doing, stroke not doing. And by the way, if I take eBombo, who's a company I didn't mention, we took them in like less than over, just over a year ago, probably they were doing $30,000 a month in revenue. Last month they did $227,000 in revenue. Man. And these are not big ticket items. If you looked at his calendar diary, every single day he had no less than five to seven new customer appointments, new customer appointments that he was having wow. five to seven. He's outreaching a minimum of 2,000 times a day, a day to customers. That's a place of execution. Now that you have that picture in your mind, look at a founder who maybe lives near you and then look at what their day looks like. Check out their diary. See how many fixing my presentation meetings they're having. See how many creative, objective, OKR meetings that they're going to do. See how many team meetings they're going to be arranging. Lots of those team meetings. Advisor meetings, they love that. Talk, talk, talk. And the reason I hate this so much is that, again, I see the tragedy of failure. I hate failure. Failure is a terrible thing. Anybody who glorifies failure is an idiot. Failure is not fun. You lose houses in failure. You lose families in failure. It's not good. Time is the enemy. That's who you fight against. That's who you win against. And by the way, when stuff doesn't work, it's not called failure. It's called evolution. That's what's called building a great product. You want stuff not to be perfect all the time because it makes you stronger for when it is perfect. I love that. I love that. 
So let's step into a little bit about your overall, like what do you see as emerging trends or what are you looking for? And I know I know you and I had a conversation about AI not not so recent ago at, at VC and you don't, you know, you're you're looking for solid businesses, right? At the core of what you believe in. But is there certain underlying trends that you see occurring and you're like, oh, this is interesting. These are some places to look out for as an investment thesis or do you yeah. just at the core of it, just look for the great guys you can execute and you don't really care where, where they're? It's an interesting one. Uh, so first of all, people have been talking about AI for 20 years, right? And, and most of those people who are talking about AI for 20 years were really talking about an Excel spreadsheet, right? <laughs> so it wasn't really AI. Not so, a version of AI today, correct. Yeah. And the, but look, so there's wonderful things happening within technology today. And honestly, like if we look back 10 years ago, there was wonderful things happening within cybersecurity. And if we look back before that, there was wonderful things happening within infrastructure. And even five or seven years ago, like I love what's happening within blockchain and how like we're building out an entirely new, like I just, there's, there's always great evolutions in technology. Right now, it's more visual than most because AI is like the breakthroughs have been so powerful in what's happening there. But at the end of the day, there's only one judge and jury in this court, and that is the customer. And if the need isn't there, then again, there will be the people who are talk, 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 talk. And then there will be the people who truly are serving their customer to something that they desperately need. I call it like moving from product attributes to all the way through emotional, um, uh, tra emotional resonance to transformational impacts, like transformational impact. What did my customer's day look like yesterday? And what does it look like today? And if it's wonderful, different changed, um, worth paying for equals that extra money, then something incredible is happening. So yes, AI is like tremendously important, but I kind of see that as table stakes. I see that AI is going to be built into everything the same way that like if we go back to the 70s, the internet was table stakes. It wasn't about the internet as a thing with the exception of a few infrastructural companies. 99.99999% of the other companies that broke through, they broke through because of products that they were just monetizing better on the internet. So everything for me is the customer. Everything for me is what the customer says. And if you can use things the same way that Matteo from eBombo is using like great technologies to be able to get to that customer better and serve them with more efficacy, then God bless you. So I suppose my, my short answer is I don't have a type. I just have an outcome that I love to be able to see. And if I can dig in and see ways that not only we have a company that have some form of customer relationship that's building to an extent that it looks like a real relationship is there. But the second favorite thing for me is if I can see areas that they haven't fully maximized what they can truly become. And again, it might be communication on their websites. It might be the product hasn't evolved to what it could evolve to. It could be anything, but I want to see it go there. I love that. And that brings us to an end of an, another incredible conversation. Thank you, Brian, for taking the time today. If people need to get a hold of you, what's the best way? LinkedIn or? Yeah, I mean, my email is brian at expertdojo.com. Anybody can contact me anytime. Um, and let me throw in one final thing if I can um, okay. that I hope will, will be helpful with people. Number one, it is almost the end of 2023 right now and about to hit 2024. This is the moment of execution for me. Literally, at the age of 54 years of age, there has never been a better time for me to be in this place of battle in early stage startup 
to be able to win. I know this for an absolute fact. And what that means is I am not going to hide and cower in 2024 just because the markets are down a little bit or be afraid of it. I will go harder at the markets than I've ever gone before. We're going to open up in India for a fact. We're more than likely going to open up in Dubai and maybe we'll open up in Hong Kong as well. But at least two of those three markets that we're going to do. And I encourage everybody to look at your competitors in the market. They have less money being given to them. If you're an early stage startup, I promise you, the later stage startups in your space are hurting way more than you. They don't have the advertising money they had before. They don't have the budget to pay their developers that they had before. They don't have the, the Facebook advertising budget either. They don't even have the aggression in the market that they had before. And they definitely don't have the liquidity in the market they had before. So there are fewer money being pushed into the people who can really crush you. Like this is the time to break through if ever there was. And the final thing I want to say is we kind of got tired of turning people down for the accelerator. And so we created a pre-accelerator stroke founders community. It is absolutely free to join this. You just go on the Expert Dojo website and you'll see an, an ability to be able to join in. But it means every single week of every single month of every single year, we can work with you on product outreach, customer outreach really in your case, product fit or customer love as we like to call it, and making sure just we're coaching you to become better and better and better so that you have the next best thing to being able to get into an accelerator, which is support and help so that you can grow and build your company. Perfect. Thank you, Brian. So this brings us to the end of our insightful conversation with Brian McMahon, his experiences and vision of our unique perspective on the world of startups and entrepreneurship. Thank you, Brian, for sharing your journey and insights with us. And thank you for our listeners for joining us on the Growth Ventures podcast. Thank you, Brian. Thanks for having us. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review and subscribe for more in-depth discussions with leaders in the business and tech world. I'm Hamil Azarian, and this has been the Growth Ventures podcast. Until next time, stay curious and keep innovating.